All right. Good morning, everybody. It's the faithful remnant, <laughs> willing to brave the the cold and the snow. Only because we have potluck. Okay. Well, I suppose that's acceptable. Um, oh well, good. It's good to know you're excited for church too, Emmy. Jesus is excited to see you too. I'm sad it's not the other way around. Uh, <laughs> okay. Let's begin with prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. We pray again, O Lord, graciously hear the prayers of your people, that we who justly suffer the consequences of our sin may be mercifully delivered by your goodness to the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the congregation at prayer. The verse for the week is from John chapter 3. Let's take a look at that. Uh, verses 5 through 6. Well, I thought you were going to say verse 16. No, no. Uh, I was trying to trick you when I said 3. Uh, I assumed everyone would think it was 16. That you wouldn't have to look. Uh, but no, unfortunately you do. So let's speak this together. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Uh, okay, a couple things. First of all, truly, truly, I say to you. There's two things about that that I want to highlight. Jesus says that a lot. Truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, this is the New King James translation. Often in other translations, and I, I can't name one off the top of my head, uh, it says, assuredly, I say to you. I don't like assuredly as much. I like truly, truly better. Because the Greek says, amen, amen, I say to you. Truly, truly, most verily. I say to you. Uh, and that, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it means Jesus is not lying to you. Jesus will never lie to you. When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he means it. This is for real. This is the 100% truth. I'm not going to mislead you. I'm going to tell you the truth. Amen, amen. Unless one is born of water and spirit, not born of spirit, as some uh, would say, and not born just of water, as others would say. Those who think that, the, that baptism is just a symbol and that it isn't anything but water, that's not what Jesus is talking about. And those who think that you're baptized by the spirit and that all you need is the spirit to come upon you, that's not correct either. It's both water and spirit. Uh, and then finally, at the end here, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Those are important things too. And I want you to remember this. You as a human being, in the image and likeness of God, are triune yourself. Uh, this is the way the church talks about you, body, soul, and spirit. So you have spirit and you have flesh. This doesn't mean to say that if you're born in the flesh... Uh, of your mother and you come out and you are a baby and then you grow up and you have flesh and you are a real human being that you're bad uh, and it doesn't mean that the only thing about you that's good is the spirit what it means is this flesh sarks that's the that's the word in the greek it's even sort of a gross sounding word sarks sarkos uh, it's it's the sin that lives in your flesh the flesh is sort of a word that is synonymous with your condition 
Your flesh is uh, full of, as the midweek kids know, it's the condition that you are born with, original sin. That is what your flesh is chocked full of. So when you see the word flesh, think of sin, original sin. If you, are, if you live according to the flesh, if you do what your old Adam wants, if you do what your original sin drives you to do, then you are a slave to that. You're of that flesh. But if you, do, if you follow where the spirit leads, that is uh, you being born of spirit. If you are of the spirit, you are a spirit. Uh, okay? Give, so essentially, this is the way of life. This is the way of death. This is the way of the old Adam. This is the way of the new man who daily emerges and arises to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Let's speak this again. Truly, truly, truly I, I say to you, you unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Okay, what is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. What is that word of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, forgive the typo there. I just found that. Um, baptism is not just plain water. But the word just means what? Only. Right. It's not only water. But that means it is water. It's not only water, but it is water. But it's water that is included with God's command. What is God's command? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's the command. Go and make disciples, baptizing them. Okay? It's included in God's command and combined with God's word. What is God's word? It is the name of God. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's command and there's word. When water is attached to those things, it is a baptism. Uh, okay, that's uh, basically it. One last question. Where is the faith? Where is the room in this, in this explanation for the faith that makes baptism a baptism? In other words, where does it say that you, the validity of baptism... That, that baptism is real and that it works on you is found in your faith, in your own ability to believe. Nowhere. Nowhere. Baptism is not something that you do. It is something that God does to you. And that's the important thing. Faith always receives. But faith doesn't do here. God does it. The pastor doesn't baptize you. Jesus baptizes you. The pastor doesn't preach to you, Jesus preaches to you. The pastor doesn't give his body and blood to you, Jesus gives his body and blood to you. You are being worked upon. God does something to you, for you. Uh, okay, questions? All right, uh, Sunday school children, you may depart. Yeah, see, this is, so Sunday school and midweek and the congregation at prayer, all of this stuff should tie together. We just finished baptism with the midweek kids. So we just finished it in midweek and now we're starting it with the congregation at prayer. So these things, 
through constant repetition, they get hammered in. Well, Cheryl was impressed last week. <coughs> Stained glass, the altar, and so he was. A, she was, you know, taking that all in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. Uh, I think that children, especially the younger children, deserve a lot more credit often than we give them. They are little sponges, and they soak up much more than we realize, um, and much more than we give them credit for. Now, before we go back to the Magnificat, and hopefully. Uh, get close enough as to be acceptable to finishing. <laughs> uh, I, have to, I have to provide an addendum to something that I said last week in Bible class about the Lord's Prayer. And this was brought to my attention by my dear wife, whom I love. As we were eating uh, lunch together, she said, I thought Bible class was very good, but I found one mistake in what you said. <laughs> and I said, where was the mistake? And she said, well, when you were talking about the Lord's Prayer and the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer, you said that the, uh, the very end, the blessing, for thine is the king, kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, was from Matthew. Uh, and I looked at that and I didn't find it in Matthew. And I said, well, it is too in Matthew. And I, <laughs> and I took my Bible, I said, look at this, Matthew 6.13, it's right here. And she took her Bible out and she said, Matthew 6.13, it's not here. <laughs> so uh, now I'm going to explain to you a little bit more and, and a little bit better uh, about the end <laughs> of that Lord's Prayer. And uh, the... Oh yeah, sure. It, it might not be there. And, and the, so... No, it, but, but here's the thing about that. Uh, if you look, if you have a Bible that has notes, you might have a footnote in your Bible at that verse that says, some manuscripts also read, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, some people put that into the text, and other people leave it as a footnote. So the basic premise that uh, the Matthean Lord's Prayer is mostly what we say still stands true. The, the one from Luke is sort of the shorthand version. Like Luke writes it and says, now you already know all this, so I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version. But Matthew says, here it is, the whole thing. So uh, you might have a footnote, you might have the text in the actual verse. But uh, if there is just a footnote, that's the, that's the point we're going to address. Why is there a footnote and why would some Bibles have it and others wouldn't? The answer for, to that is, as people copy manuscripts, uh, sometimes there are slight mistakes. Sometimes people look at the text and they say, oh, I know what he's saying there, but I don't think other people are going to, so I'll quick make a little note. And then the note gets copied again and again and again and again. So when people look at the Bible, uh, when they gather the manuscripts together, and they look at the Greek text and the Hebrew text, they take what is basically the majority, the one that most of the manuscripts say, and uh, by and large, most of them are the same, and they say, because this is what almost everybody says, we think that some of the other extra ones were maybe just mistakes. So we're gonna take these, this is what it says. The ones that say, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, are in the minority. 
so that's sort of an editorial decision as to whether it's in the text or whether it's a footnote. But this is my opinion on the matter now. Uh, here I have the Didache. You've heard me talk about the Didache. This is the teaching of the 12 apostles. And here's an interesting fact for you. In the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 4, when it, Peter preaches and the disciples are doing miracles and they're, uh, they're doing all of this, and it says, the people devoted themselves to the teaching of the 12 apostles. This is what they're talking about. And I, I looked this up too, because I was curious uh, a while back to see what the Greeks said. Because if it was the teaching, that's sort of ambiguous in English, but it isn't in Greek. It can be one of two things. It can be a noun, as in this is the thing that they're giving, or it can be a participle. This is what they're doing. They're devoting themselves to that which is being taught, to the, to the apostles that are teaching. So it could be one of those two things in the Greek. And it's a noun. It's a noun, which means they're talking about a thing, the teaching. What is the teaching? This is the teaching, the didache of the apostles. And this, so this is a, the earliest Christian document that we have. It's uh, dated to roughly around the same time as Paul's epistles were being written. And this is basically the teaching of the apostles as it was compiled and then put into this little document. And I would encourage you all to read it. You can find it online. Uh, I also have two copies of it, so if anyone wants to borrow it and read it, we can pass my copies around. It's so short. It's so short. The font's even pretty big, so it's a, it's a real easy read. And half of this one, I mean, look how thin this is. Half of this is even Greek text. So the, the um, text that you're actually going to be reading is only this much. Look at that. I mean, it's so short. But anyway, every Christian should read this. Uh, it's great. It talks about baptism. That's how you know that you don't have to have baptism by immersion because even the 12 apostles said you don't have to have baptism by immersion. And I'm pretty sure the 12 apostles knew what they were talking about. Uh, but that's just me. Anyway, soapboxes over. Um, <laughs> here's how the Didache says to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Our daily bread give us today, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Uh, and then it says, Amen. Three times pray this a day. So there it is. You have that at the end of the Didache, the earliest Christian document. This is what the apostles were teaching. This is what the church was doing. That's part of the prayer there. Now, there are two reasons that this could uh, be the case. The first is, uh, and this is the one that I'm not so wild about. We're saving the best for last. Uh, the first is that that text was added to the end of the prayer so that the prayer could be used in a liturgical setting. So that when we get together, when we who are Christians get together and we come to church and we worship and we have the Eucharist, and we pray the Lord's Prayer, it's part of the liturgy. So we add the blessing at the end of the prayer, just like we add the Gloria Patri at the end of our Psalms. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The precedent for that is set in First Chronicles. First uh, Chronicles 29. This is when David uh, offers praise to God before the assembly, and he says... 
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise you for your glorious name. Okay, that's a liturgical, that's a liturgical precedent. That's part of a liturgical service. That's a benediction or a, a, a gloria patri, glory to God, a, a blessing put at the end to God. Um, now, in Jewish practice as well, they would tack on something like that at the end of their prayers as well. So the argument goes like this. Because there's liturgical use, there's precedent for that, because we know that the Jews did add this extra doxology to the end of their prayers, then it makes sense to say that the early Christians would receive this prayer from Jesus, that they would pray it, but then they would tack on the doxology at the end, like they were used to doing. It's a fine argument, and there's nothing wrong with it. But, now we get to the second possibility, which is the one that I prefer, and that is this. Even though this is in the minority, according to what the manuscripts say, it is the majority according to practice. So my opinion, and it's the opinion of many others, and I could be wrong, I'm open to correction, but I believe that since the Didache has it, and they record it that way, and this came from the apostles, and they said, pray this way, because Jesus said to pray this way, that that's how Jesus taught the prayer. And that uh, people who have removed it uh, are not in the correct. So I think that the, the testament of the, the documents that we have, the way that Christians were praying, and the fact that it is already contained in some of the manuscripts is enough to say, yes, this is actually the way that Jesus taught the prayer. Um, now, either one of those possibilities is correct, or could be correct, um, but the second one is the one that I prefer. How come we add the second ever, forever and ever? Uh, that is a good question. Some of the Greek manuscripts emphasized it. They, they put it, uh, so the way it's translated literally is to the end of the age. That's, forever is not a word in Greek. Uh, the, forever is a concept. They don't have a word that means that. They, it's the concept. And really, they have it right. We have it wrong. We use the word forever, but tell me what forever means. You can't do it. You have no concept of forever. You don't understand it because you've never been able to experience it. So you have a word for something that you don't know because you've never experienced it. So forever. Okay, it just means it's a really long time. Eh, okay, but the concept is better. To the end of the age. It is to the end and to the end then that some of them add in to emphasize that. Just like how Jesus says, Amen, Amen. Would it suffice for him to have said, Amen, I say to you? Absolutely. Truly I say to you, assuredly I say to you. Sure, that would have been enough, but it's an emphasizing factor. I, truly, truly I say to you, hey, red flags here, I'm not lying to you. Truly, truly, truly I'm saying to you. And here it is then uh, with the Lord's Prayer too. It's emphasizing, not only just for a short period of time is God going to reign, but to the end of the age and to the end of the age. 
And the Psalms sort of speak that way too. They build on one another to this end and forevermore. Um, to the end of the age and even further than that. Think about the longest span of time that you could possibly fathom and then think of going even beyond that eternally. That's, what it, that's how long God will reign and that's how long he deserves honor and, excuse me, honor and glory. Uh, forever is, is, is a concept uh, much like trying to define space. Yeah. You know, what is space? Well, it's out there. How far does it go? <laughs> Goes out there. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, it's it's hard to put a definitive term to it. Because so this is the thing: you, you and I, we are all finite creatures, and we live in a finite space. Uh, but things like forever, things like space, things like eternity, those are infinite, and uh, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. It, you just can't do it. How, explain to me how God has no beginning and will have no end. <laughs> yeah. I, you can't because it just, it sounds, I mean, and it's, it sounds dumb. It sounds dumb. God never began and God's never going to end. Now look at the world around you. What would possibly lead you to believe that something could not have a beginning and will not have an end? Nothing. This is one of those times where you look at the faith and the wisdom of the world uh, says, well, that's folly. That's not true. Uh, and this is another time then when faith believes to be true the things that experience tells you are false. So this is a mystery of the faith. The faith is full of mysteries, and this is one. How is God eternal? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and I don't have any problems being your pastor and telling you, I don't know. Uh, I don't understand it. I can't explain it. It's like the Trinity, the worst Sunday for every preacher, because you have to go into the pulpit and you have to preach about the one thing that you're never supposed to try and explain. How do you do it? What are you supposed to say? <laughs> How are you going to go into the pulpit and preach about the Trinity without committing a heresy? It's impossible. It's impossible to try and explain the Trinity without committing heresy, without going against Scripture. It's impossible to, to comprehend eternity. So we just... Um, Forever and ever and ever. The longest period of time you could think of, and then longer even than that. Um, so there you go. That's that. And just so you know, uh, my wife and I were both correct. <laughs> Very diplomatic there. Yeah, we're, we're, sh we're sharing our victory in that one. And joyfully so. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Now, we're going to move ahead. To, we're going back to Luke. There's just one thing I want to say more, and I shouldn't, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, uh, from Micah, uh, just talking about God's mercy, how God wants you to, he wants you to know him as a merciful God, not as the God of power and might and the God who crushes his enemies. There are lots of gods that they say will crush their enemies, but there's only one God of mercy. Um, God is not like Conan the Barbarian. You know, when asked, what is best in life, he says, to crush your enemies, to see them going before you in terror, and to hear the lamentations of the women. Oh, <laughs> okay, that's what's best in life? Well, not for God. Uh, for God, what's best in life is that he is merciful to you, that you receive his love, and all of the bountiful gifts that he bestows upon you, 
and that you would turn from your wicked ways and live. That's what's the best in life for God, and that's how he wants you to know him. So, you know, the, not to say the other things are false, which I know I've already said, and not to say that God isn't powerful, and not to say that God isn't uh, you know, the great creator, not to say that God isn't the judge, but those things are secondary, really, to God's love and God's mercy. That's primary. So, uh, Micah, I have this, Micah 7, 18 through 20. I'm just going to read this. If you, it, these minor prophets, uh, we're not all the best familiar with the minor prophets. A lot of them are so short, they're easy to skip. And most of them have names that you look at and uh, judge by their titles and decide you don't really want to read it. Uh, but I will tell you what, they have a lot of great stuff. And the more you read the minor prophets, the more you're going to realize uh, they're minor only in that they're short because they speak a great wealth. And Micah is a great. Micah is one of my favorite of the minor prophets. And uh, so we have uh, Micah chapter 7. This is the very end of the book. And the last verses. Um, so here we go. Let me just make sure I got this right. Okay, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. The end. That's the end of the book. Man, I mean, what a way to end a book. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, showing mercy? You will throw our sins into the depths of the sea. I mean, it's like Jonah. Uh, the sins are being thrown overboard. The sins are being thrown into the depths of the sea, and the great beast from the depths is coming to swallow up your sins. And you... You are vomited up out of the mouth of death. You come out of the mouth of the tomb with Christ, but your, tomb, or, uh, uh, but your sins do not. Your sins are swallowed up and they're taken away. They're thrown into the sea. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. It's like um, the saying about private confession. The ear of the pastor is the tomb where sins go to die. And you walk out of that tomb and your sins do not. It's beautiful. This is how God wants to be known. Who is a God like you? Who is a God that pardons iniquity? Who is a God of love? Who is a God that condescends? None. None of them. Only the true God. So that's that. Now, uh, Luke, we're back in Luke 1. We're going <coughs> to... One way or another, we're going to finish this today <laughs> because um, the next two weeks, I won't be here. And then when I do get back, it's going to be Lent. So we have something new to do for Lent. So the second work of God uh, from the Magnificat, Luke 1.51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. One more thing on mercy. This is a comment of Luther. When you look at these two verses together, and his mercy on those who, is on those who fear him from generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. Okay? The act here is that God destroys spiritual pride, that God is strong, that God is mighty, which is true. It's all true. But unto how many generations is the strength of God's arm made bare? 
doesn't say. All it says is that he has shown strength with his arm. That's it. But upon how many generations is he merciful? Generation unto generation. Okay, there it is. That generation to generation is another one of those forever type things. From generation to generation means as long as there is propagation. From generation up to generation to generation. As long as there are human beings in the world, as long as there are descendants of Abraham, which there always will be, you live under the same promise of Abraham. I will bless those who bless those. Or I will bless those who bless you. I'll persecute those who persecute you. Uh, so here it is. The Lord wants to be merciful. And he is a thousand times more merciful than he is uh, strong or, uh, or uh, powerful or crushing his enemies. Okay? He's merciful from generation to generation. Yeah, he's strong. He's shown strength with his arm. But he's merciful from generation to generation. Okay? Pride is a bad thing. Uh, the early church talks about pride as being the chief of sins. Pride is the sin that caused Satan to fall. Pride is the sin that caused Adam and Eve to fall. How so? What is pride then? What is pride that it causes Satan to fall, that it causes mankind to fall? Pride is to say, I want to be like God. It doesn't, and this is the, the tricky thing about pride. Pride doesn't, pride doesn't have to say, I want to be God. Pride isn't dumb. Pride knows there is only one God and that that's the only one that can be God. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, it's okay, God. You can be God. But I want to be like you. I want to be likened unto you. I want to have all the same kind of power and authority that you have. I want to do it myself. I want to be like you. It's great that you're there. And I'm not going to try and be the one true God. But I do want to be a God. Is that so unreasonable? No, that's pride. So Satan uh, rebels. Why? Because he wants to be like God. And there's a great story from the early church about um, one of the reasons that Satan is angry with God uh, is because God makes man. Because Satan looks at himself, Lucifer looks at himself, he looks at the angels and he says, are we not much greater than these creatures of flesh and bone? Why are these the ones that you're going to exalt when it should be us? They should be bowing down to us. They should be bowing down to me. And he stages a coup. Hey, isn't that right, boys? Yeah, that's right. All right, well, let's go. <laughs> let's go. It's a mutiny. And they get the boot. Uh, so that didn't work out so well for them. But then, now here's the thing. Where is the pride in Adam and Eve? Where's the pride in that fall? Because the, 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 here's, the, here's the question. You know, uh, some people, and I, I know many of them, they think, well, pride... That's dumb that the early church would say that that's the sin. Why? Well, because we know that the sin was that they ate the fruit. God said, don't do it. They did it. That's it. That's the sin. But it's much deeper than that. 
How do you sin if you don't have a thought of sin? How do you reach out and take a fruit and eat it if you haven't made up your mind that that's what you're going to do? And if you've made up your mind that that's why you're going to, or that's what you're going to do, why have you made up your mind? What has caused you to decide that you're going to go and perform that act and then that you do physically perform the act? Are you posing that as a question? Well, sure, if you have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. But, but Eve looked at it with the thought that I know better than God. God commanded us not to eat of that. But her pride says, can't be that bad. I'm going to try it. Yeah, so there's this great, if you're, if you're really reading in between the lines of the Genesis narrative in chapter 3, uh, you see this exchange. Eve and and. Keep in mind that Adam is right there with her. Adam is the one who has preached the word of God to her. She knows what God has said because Adam has told her. And he stands there with her. And they both know together. And she says, no, we can't eat of that because God has said no. We live by the word of God. And God has said, don't eat of this. We trust God. We love God. We live by his word. We have every other tree. We don't need to go against God's word. And the serpent says, oh, well, that's fine and dandy, but you know. God's holding out on you. He doesn't love you as much as you think he loves you. He wants you not to be like him. And if you eat of this fruit, he knows you're going to be like him in knowing good and evil. Now, that's the, that's the parenthetical. Jesus, Satan speaks in half-truths. It's a parenthetical. You'll be just like God in knowing good and evil. Okay? And they say, oh, I'll be just like God. And they forgot to listen to the second little fine print bit. Well, and then the, the language changes in scripture when you read it. Then when Eve saw with her eyes that the fruit was good and pleasing, she took of it and ate. Okay, and there it is. It's a transformation. It's the transition from, I live by the word of God, I live by hearing, God has spoken and I have heard, to, yeah, I heard that, but I see something. And what do I, what, what, what is within me when I see that thing? I want it. And I want it real bad. Why do I want it? Because I want to be like God. God said no, but my eyes say yes. And I want it because I want to be like God. So I'm going to take it and I'm going to eat it. And there's the underlying pride. They take and they eat. Yes, they disobey the word of God. But even more so than that, they have turned away from him because they have decided that they want to be gods themselves. And the ironic part of that whole uh, narrative is that they're more like God before they eat of the fruit than they were after. So they get twisted into this sense that God is holding out on them, that they're not already like God, that they're not already created in the image and the likeness of God. They have this false understanding of who God is and what he's going to do, and they turn from him. They want to be gods themselves. That's pride. So is it a sin to be proud of something that someone has done? No. Being proud of someone or something is really kind of a fruit of love. 
Um, you can be proud, like your, uh, your children or your grandchildren play their recital and they, they played really well and you're really proud of them. But even if they didn't play well, it doesn't matter because you'd be really proud of them anyway because they're up there and they're playing and you just, you love them to death. You're proud of them. And uh, it's not wrong to be proud of somebody. It's not, it's, not proud, or it's not wrong to be proud of something that you've done, an accomplishment that you've made, um, at, you know, as long as with being proud, you understand where gifts come from. Thanks be to God. I wrote this really great paper and I got an A on it in school. Hey, well, thanks be to God. I, I'm, I'm proud of, I did a lot of work on that. I worked really hard. Thanks be to God. My child, my grandchild, they did really well at their sporting event or their, uh, their recital, their concert, whatever it is. I'm really proud of them. Thanks be to God for this gift that he has given to me and for this gift that he has given to this to this child or grandchild or whomever. Larry. I'm trying to get around the idea as a person born with the Holy Spirit that gets a right to accept or reject, or as they go through life, do they acquire the Holy Spirit and accept or reject? Uh, uh, baptism is the answer. Baptism is the, the Holy Spirit. You're baptized with water and the word, the the Holy Spirit enters in. That's why uh, if you're doing the Lutheran uh, baptism right the right way, there's an exorcism at the beginning because the little pagan comes to you and you say, depart you unclean spirit and make room for the Holy Spirit. And now I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You have to kick the enemy out before you build the walls. Because otherwise, what's the point? Okay, so you have the Holy Spirit. Now, you can decide you don't want the Holy Spirit anymore. You can decide that you want to be God yourself, that you don't need him, uh, and, you're, and that you're going to throw him away. But it doesn't mean you haven't been baptized. It doesn't mean that you haven't been brought in. And it doesn't mean that you're not a child of God, that God <coughs> wants to continue loving. Like, um, when you have a child, you, and your child is brought into the world... At what point does that child after birth cease to be your child? When does the child cease to be your child? Never. never. The child never ceases to be your child. Now, your 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 year old child, when is it that that child uh, ceases to desire to be your child? <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's, there are times, some last longer than others, when your child doesn't want to be your child, but it doesn't negate the fact that they are. That's baptism. That child will always be your child. They can throw you away. They can put you aside. They can spurn your love. But at the end of the day, they are still your child. And when they come back like the prodigal son and they think that they're going to earn your love back because they know that if they were in charge and if they had to deal with somebody who had done to you what they had done to you, they would have stopped loving. And they come to you and they run back and they say, make me as one of your hired help. What can I do to bring your love back? What is your response? You never lost my you embrace that child. You clothe them with the finest robe in the house. You put the ring on the finger. 
because they never stopped being your child. They just came home. Does that answer your question? Okay. Uh, all right. So, spiritual pride, then, is a, a terrible enemy. Uh, and, it, and it's sort of the biggest thing. All, all sin ultimately comes from the, the pride of man that says, well, you know, I really want to be God myself. No thanks, God, I can do it better myself. Uh, that's pride. So God, one of his acts uh, is that he destroys spiritual pride. And that's one of the great things about Lutheranism is that you constantly hear how bad you are. <laughs> You know, the, old, the old style of preaching that just said, oh, now listen here, you bunch of maggot sacks, you're no good. It's like going to basic training almost. So you get here and you hear all about how bad, how bad you are. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is sort of a caricature. But, but, but the, the reality is, I mean, you come here and you confess your sins. You know that you are a sinner. Everything starts with that uh, uh, revelation. Remember when we talked about the liturgy? Where does the liturgy begin? It begins with your death. You're wheeled into this church on a gurney. You don't get to uh, decide for yourself what happens to you. You don't get to decide for yourself that you're going to hop off that gurney once you've died. You don't get to stand up and say, oh, just kidding, guys, I did it. <laughs> I started my heart. I had the backup power. Uh, you know, no, it's something God does to you. So you, you come in here and it starts with your death. You are dead and you are made alive in Christ. You confess your sins. You drown the old Adam. And even though you hold him under until the bubbles stop coming up, somehow he's really good at tricking you and he still gets his head back up there. Daily you have to put him back under. Okay. Daily you have to repent. Daily, you have to seek contrition. You have to ask for forgiveness. That's uh, breaking spiritual pride. God coming in and saying, hey, listen. Uh, you're a sinner. I love you. You're my child. I want what's best for you. You're a sinner. Now come and get forgiveness. But it's, only, it's, it's a forgiveness only I can give you. You can't do it yourself. So that's, you're going to get that. Um, I don't want to spoil the sermon. But it's, um, it's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. The master of the vineyard uh, hires some men for the whole day and others for an hour, and he pays them all the same. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's the grace of God. That you can't do it on your own that it is something that is right for you. That the master, your master, chooses, uh, he chooses to give you grace and mercy. He chooses to give you that which you do not deserve, and he gives it to you recklessly. There's a great hymn. Um, it's Preach Ye the Word, I think. Martin Franzman wrote it, but there's a great line in there. The sower sows his reckless love. The sower sows his reckless love. Now think about that for a second. You can't do it on your own. But he sows recklessly. He takes the seed and he throws it everywhere. He throws it in the rocks. He throws it in the weeds. He throws it into the fertile grass. He throws it absolutely everywhere. He's reckless. And it's wasteful to us. It's wasteful. 
like Jesus turning water into wine, into the finest wine at a wedding where everybody's already drunk. Well, what a waste. Nobody's going to care about the wine anyway. You should have just turned it into bad wine. should have just given them water and told them it was wine. Probably would have been better for them. <laughs> okay? Yeah, <laughs> they never would have known. They would have woke up a lot happier. Jesus doesn't do things halfway. That's right. Jesus doesn't do things halfway. Jesus, Jesus goes over the top, always. Sin is addition, grace is exponential. It's always over the top. He crushes pride. And this is the, this is the reason why he crushes pride. So that he can deal with you mercifully. So that your hard exterior crust is broken away. It's taking a chisel to the hardened heart and just <clears throat> breaking it open so that he can come to you. Uh, okay, putting down the mighty. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. The seats of the mighty, or the seat singular of the mighty, is only for God to occupy. It's only for God to occupy. So, um, in Exodus... We don't have time to read the whole thing. Uh, but there's the song of Moses, which we have in the hymnal. And if you came early this morning uh, and heard me <laughs> singing all by myself in the sanctuary, that's what I was singing, the song of Moses, because I had just looked it up thinking, oh yeah, that's in the hymnal, isn't it? <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's Exodus chapter 15. We're not going to... We're not going to read the whole thing. I'll just read a little bit of it to you so you get the sense of what it is. Um, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. That's the first verse. Now, isn't that beautiful? What is this uh, talking about? The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The crossing of the Red Sea. They get to the other side of the sea. This is, I'm putting it in context for you. They get to the other side of the Red Sea. They crossed on dry ground. Pharaoh's army. They go in on dry ground. And they don't come out. The waters come down upon them. And then what does Moses do? He sings a song. <laughs> it's kind of funny when you look at the Old Testament. After all these big events, there's a song. There's a song. Oh, Moses sees that they've, they've all died. Well, you know what? Let's take a break here. Let's take a breather. Let's all just sing a song. We'll sing a happy song. <laughs> and uh, you know, this happens all the time. And it's great. You want to know why? Because it's liturgy. Because God has done something. And then you thank him. And you praise him. That's it. That's you coming to the altar, getting the Eucharist, coming back and saying, Oh Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. It's the same thing. The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. The person who thought he was mighty is not mighty anymore. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones. He has cast them out of the saddle. He alone is mighty. They have sought after vain glory. They have not sought the word of the Lord. Okay. Uh, some other places to look are Revelation 17 or 19. Excuse me. Uh, we don't have time to look at that. But the fall of Babylon. Uh, the mighty ones, the ones who believe themselves to be mighty, are cast down. 
Uh, and that sort of ties, it, I mean, all of these tie together. But you're starting to see how casting down the mighty, breaking pride, and granting mercy all happen together. Exalting the lowly. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Those who lose their life for Christ's sake are exalted, for their trust is in the Lord alone. Job, Job chapter 5. Verse 11. It's way over here. Job 5.11. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He sets on high those who are lowly. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God takes the mighty out of their throne, casts them down, and then picks up the lowly and puts them in that throne instead. That would sort of be pointless, especially when you take into consideration the fact that the throne is for God alone. But God takes those who are oppressed, those who are beaten down, those who are weak, those who are hungry, we'll see, and he raises them up. He raises them out of their misery and raises them up, exalts them into seats of honor and seats of glory. Now, where are the seats of honor and the seats of glory located? That's the question. At the foot of the throne of the Lamb. You read the book of Revelation, you, uh, it's, it's all in there, that, that picture of uh, the saints coming before the, the throne of the Lamb in his kingdom. Who are these who wash their robes? They are those who have come out of the great tribulation. Their robes have been made clean in the blood of the Lamb. They are exalted. They are lifted up. Pastor, there's... You're touching on one of the parts of the Beatitudes, too. Blessed are the meek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, you see how the Bible's all tied together. Because Mary's words uh, in the Magnificat don't come from thin air. It's not that she has some zap from the Holy Spirit that all of a sudden she, you know, like a wind-up toy, oh, oh I, my soul magnifies the Lord, oh, and speaks and then goes, wow, it's really weird that I said that. I don't know why I said that. Where do those words come from? No, she knows what she's saying, just like Moses knows what he's saying. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Well, when you look at some of this stuff, you realize, especially in the case of Mary, it's scripture. Read the Psalms. If you want to know what the Magnificat says, read the Psalms. And you'll see, a lot of that is her talking about the Psalms. She's saying the truth of what God is and what he does based on what he has already said that he does. And the Beatitudes are the same. You look at the Beatitudes. Don't ever think that Jesus comes to teach something new. In a way, Jesus is a radical. In a way, he's teaching something new. Why? Because what he's teaching goes against what the people thought they understood. But when you look at the entirety of Scripture, you realize that the message that Jesus is preaching is just that. It's the message of Scripture. It's the message of himself. But that's also why we can't give the disciples such a hard time as we would like about them not understanding. 
Because it isn't, after the uh, it isn't until after the crucifixion and the resurrection that any of the scripture actually begins to make sense. I mean, they, they wonder about Elijah, and, and they say, when they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, this is immediately after that, he, they say, well, whoa, was Elijah there? Does that mean the Christ is coming? And Jesus, I mean, it's funny, because you can, if you had to make a movie, if you had to make a movie and you had to put on screen the reactions of Jesus, how would you do it? <laughs> Here's how I would do it. Hey, what do you think? Elijah was there. Does that mean the Christ is going to come? <laughs> no. Guys, 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 I'm trying to tell just, just be quiet and listen. <laughs> be quiet and listen. I've got stuff to tell you, okay? Elijah has already come. He didn't understand who Elijah was. He already came, and they killed him. He already came. He bore witness to me. And they chopped his head off. John the baptizer was Elijah. So you see, things don't really start to become clear until after the resurrection. Jesus appears in the body, and that's important. The body is much more important than the empty tomb. An empty tomb doesn't preach anything. So what that the tomb is empty? Who cares? I don't care that the tomb is empty. It doesn't mean anything. They discovered an empty tomb. Okay, the Pharisees told everyone that somebody stole the body. The end of that story, who cares about an empty tomb? What matters is the body. When the body of Christ comes, when, the, when Christ in his flesh appears, risen from the dead, with the nail prints in his hand, the, the stab wound in the side, and he takes Thomas's hand and he puts it in that hole and he puts it in that side, that means something. It's about the body. That's the body. Now we know nobody stole that body. The tomb is empty, yes, but the body is here. The body is risen. Um, all right, filling the hungry. He has filled the hungry with good things. Now, um, you can be hungry in two ways. You can be physically hungry, as in church was really long and I really just can't wait to go get a bite to eat. <laughs> or you can be spiritually hungry. Uh, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. In which case, come to church. Uh, because we'll feed you the food of righteousness. Um, so when, when Mary says he fills the hungry with good things, uh, you can say, yes, okay, he's going to fill the hungry with physical food. In a way, that's correct. Look at the, the widow of Nain. No, not Nain. Zarephath. The widow of Zarephath. Um, she doesn't have food. She's going she's gonna to make some bread with the last bit of her flour and oil so that she and her son can eat it and die because they have no more food. And what does the Lord do? Miracle. The flower pot and the oil pot never run dry. He feeds the hungry. Look at Lazarus, um, the, the parable of Lazarus. He sits at the rich man's gate he begs for food and God gives him food 
But now here's the thing. The food that God gives Lazarus, is, it's different. It's not, it's, he doesn't feed him morsels of food as he sits at the gate. So here's the complicated bit. When God fills the hungry, and if we know that he does fill the hungry, then why is it that some people still go hungry? Well, because the primary way that God feeds is in the spirit. So, yes, it's okay to say that he does fill the physically hungry with physically good things, but more importantly, he fills the spiritually hungry with the food of righteousness. Okay? Um, there's a lot of places we could go to look at that, but really the way Mary defines hunger is that same way that Jesus defines hunger in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. And the, it's the way he talks about it in John chapter 6. He feeds the people. And then what does he say? Well, this is my flesh and blood. You, you came here because you thought I was going to feed you uh, with morsels of food. But I'm giving you a better kind of food. Your, uh, this is, and this is what I love about it. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. What a miracle. God fed the hungry. And what happened? What happened to the Israelites in the desert? They ate manna, they ate quail, and they died. And that's what Jesus says. They ate manna in the wilderness, and yet they still died. But I feed you bread of life. He who eats of this will not die. It's a greater kind of food. Yeah, but they didn't do what he told them to do. Well, sure, they didn't. That's why they had to wander in the wilderness. Right. But they still died. What about the next generation that did do what he told them to do? They entered into the land flowing with milk and honey. What happened to them? They died. They died. They died. Uh, so, filling the hungry with good things. Think of it as... Uh, yes, in his mercy, God does want to provide first article gifts, food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, all that you have. Everything that is protected under the ninth and the 10th commandments. And everything really for which you pray when you say, give us this day our daily bread. But even more so, do we desire the food and drink of righteousness. And he will fill the hungry, uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness with those things. And finally, this is the last one. We're going to make it. He casts away the rich. Here's a huge misunderstanding that I want to put to rest right now that Jesus hates rich people. If you have money, Jesus doesn't want you because he only will love you if you take everything that you have, flush it down the toilet, or give it away, and then you come here in sackcloth and ashes every single week with bare feet, trampling your way uphill both ways uh, through the snow. All right. Uh, your wealth or lack thereof is not the determining factor uh, of why God loves you. The problem with money is that it can often consume. But that's also the problem with any kind of a sin. Anything that you put your trust in, any idol other than the one true God, anything you put your trust in other than him will eventually consume you. 
Do you love your money more than you love Jesus? That's the question. Uh, so casting away the rich, that is, casting away those who have loved themselves and their riches more than they loved Jesus, and then you know, more than they cared for others. And Luther has a great quote here that I'm going to read. Uh, on the other hand, what hindrance was their riches to the Holy Fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's a great question. You read in scripture about how rich they were, and yet they still believed and God dealt mercifully with them. I guess God can't really hate the rich just because they're rich. After all, God gives you all the things you have. If you're rich, it's because God gave it to you, and God doesn't make you rich so that he can say, aha, I did it, now look at him, he's rich, now I hate it. You know, that's dumb. That's, <laughs> that's, not, that's not being merciful. Okay, God gives blessings. Now, uh, what hindrance was his royal throne to David? Or his authority to, in Babylon to Daniel? Or their high station or great riches to those who had them? Or who have them today, provided they do not set their hearts on them, nor seek their own in them? And there it is. You can have money. God doesn't hate you for having money, and he doesn't hate you for not having money. What he hates is if you create an idol out of whatever it is that you do have. Okay? Uh, Solomon says, the Lord weigheth the spirits. That is, he judgeth not according to the outward appearance, whether one be rich or poor, high or low, but according to the spirit and how it behaves itself within. There must needs be such differences and distinctions of persons and stations in our life here on earth. Yet the heart should neither cling to them nor fly from them, not cling to the high and rich, nor fly from the poor and lowly. Okay? Don't be the tax collector who has a lot of money and goes and steals more. Don't be the, uh, the ascetic who says, oh, all possessions are bad, and therefore I'm going to give away everything I have, and I'm going to go live a life of pain and misery uh, naked in the wilderness, flogging myself three times a day because that's the only way God will love me. You're falling into one or another extreme. Uh, so, anyway, the, the short thing here then to keep in mind, casting away the rich, God's act of casting away the rich is similar to uh, his act of smashing pride, crushing pride, destroying idols. That is a work of God, destroying idols. And when the idols refuse to be destroyed or when those who hold them refuse to allow them to be destroyed, um, then they are cast away. Questions? All right. Uh, I'll be gone for the next two weeks. Pastor Dragemuller will be here. Um, the next time I will see you will be Ash Wednesday after today. So uh, be, be good. You be good. Yes, okay. Um, no, when we, when we return, when, when I return and we start Bible class in Lent, um, I'm going to keep it a surprise for now, but I'm just going to tell you, it's, we, have, we have something pretty, pretty neat that we're going to be looking at. So um, keep coming back. <laughs> Morris. Further down the road a week. A week and one day. Yes, on Thursday, like the 
It's the 14th, 14th. I think. Yeah, I think it's the 14th. Okay, well, I will see you in church. The grace of our Lord be with you all.